Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. I like to think that Paul wrote the book of Hebrews, and I know there's discrepancies about that, so I'll just play it safe and say the writer of Hebrews. Um, the writer of Hebrews wrote something in, in Hebrews chapter 1, just opening up his letter to the Hebrews. And he says, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son. And I think when the writer of Hebrews was writing that, I think he was thinking, among other chapters, Jeremiah chapter 13. And of course, they didn't have chapters in those days, but this portion of Scripture was what he was thinking about because here in Jeremiah chapter 13, God is going to speak to His people, but He's using a various way. It's not, it's not a very common thing, and we'll see that as we get into chapter 13. So beginning with verse 1, it says, Thus the Lord said to me, uh, Go and get yourself a linen sash. Now if you have a King James Bible, it'll say a girdle, but we'll call it a sash here. And put it around your waist, and do not put it in water. So I got a sash, according to the, to the word of the Lord, and I put it around my waist. And the word of the Lord came to me the second time, saying, Take the sash that you acquired, which is around your waist, and arise. Go to the Euphrates, and hide it there in a hole in the rock. So I went and I hid it by the Euphrates, as the Lord commanded me. Now it came to pass after many days that the Lord said to me, Arise, go to the Euphrates, and take from there the sash which I commanded you to hide there. Then I went to the Euphrates and dug, and I took the sash from the place where I had hidden it, and there was the sash ruined. It was profitable for nothing. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Thus says the Lord, In this manner I will ruin the pride of Judah and the great pride of Jerusalem. This evil people who refuse to hear my words, who follow the dictates of their own hearts, and walk after other gods to serve them and worship them, shall be just like this sash, which is profitable for nothing." For as the sash clings to the waist of a man, so I have caused the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah to cling to me, says the Lord, that they may become my people for renown, for praise, and for glory. But they would not hear. What was their sin? God calls His people, the people of Judah, evil people who refuse to hear His words and instead they follow the dictates of their own hearts. They're the ones that made the decisions about how their life was going to be lived, what they were going to do. Um, and, and they also were caught up in idolatry. They were walking after other gods to serve them and worship them. And, and God says as a result of that, they're going to be just like that insect-eaten, soiled and decomposing sash. They were profitable for nothing. Today they say they're good for nothing. They were useless instead of what God had meant for them to be. Look at verse 11. For as the sash clings to the waist of a man, so I have caused the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah to cling to me, says the Lord, that they may become my people for renown, for praise, and for glory. But they would not hear. God had wanted His people to cling to Him. 
That word cling means to stick to, to adhere to, to pursue closely. I like this, to follow hard after. You know, most women are pretty self-conscious about their waists, or their weights, I should say, their bodies. Um, and, uh, you know, they really don't like to wear clinging dresses. You know, because why? Because it tends to reveal a little too much than, that they don't want to reveal, right? It shows uh, their curves and contours. It, it's, so, it's so close to it. Well, if you picture that in your mind, God actually wants you and I to cling to Him to the, to the way where people can see Him through us. They want to see, you know, God wants to reveal Himself to the world through us, but it can only happen when you and I cling close to the Lord, when we follow hard after the Lord. Uh, in the New Testament, when we abide with the Lord. So verse 12 Therefore, therefore, excuse me, you shall speak to them this word. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Every bottle shall be filled with wine. And they will say to you, Do we not certainly know that every bottle will be filled with wine? Then you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will fill all the inhabitants of this land, even the kings who sit on David's throne, the priests, the prophets, and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem with drunkenness. And I will dash them one against another, even the fathers and the sons together, says the Lord. I will not pity, nor spare, nor have mercy, but will destroy them. Here, another prophecy um, saying there in verse 12, Every bottle shall be filled with wine. And they're mocking Jeremiah. They're They're like, of course our bottles are going to be filled with wine. And what they're really saying is, of course, there's good days ahead. I don't know how many of you heard the president's uh, State of the Union address, but you know he made it painted such a rosy picture of the, the good days that are ahead for our nation. And I'm, I'm looking, you know, thinking, wow, uh, where's this guy thinking? I mean, where, what planet did he just come off of? Because we look around, we look at our economy, we look at our, the moral condition of our nation, and it's not good. And yet here the people of Israel, the people of Judah, were thinking, hey, there's, there's good times ahead. But instead, what Jeremiah is saying is that God was going to fill their bottles with the wine of His wrath instead of the wine of partying. And they'd be foolish. They'd be incapacitated, unable to help themselves with the judgment that was going to, to come to them. Verse 15 Hear and give give ear, do not be proud, for the Lord has spoken. Give glory to the Lord your God before He causes darkness, and before your feet stumble on the dark mountains. And while you are looking for light, He turns it into the shadow of darkness, excuse me, the shadow of death, and makes it dense darkness. How were they to give glory to God? Simply by being humble and confessing their sins. You know, the consequence of not giving God glory through humility and repentance is darkness, spiritual darkness. You know, in the book of Revelation, in uh, chapter 16, talking about the, the bold judgments that are going to happen during the great tribulation, and, and in the fourth bold judgment, it says, And the men were scorched with great heat, and they blasphemed the name of God who has power over these plagues, and they did not repent and give Him glory. You know, all, all these judgments are going to be coming on the world and, and God's wanting them to repent, but at this point they've, they've rejected Jesus Christ so much that they're not going to repent. They're just going to shake their fists at God. And, and it's interesting what the next bold judgment is. 
its darkness. Then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom became full of darkness. And they gnawed their tongues because of the pain. Not repenting leads to spiritual darkness. Verse 17, But if you will not hear it, my soul will weep in secret for your pride. My eyes will weep bitterly and run down with tears because the Lord's flock has been taken captive. This is Jeremiah speaking as he's, as he's proclaiming these judgments. You know, Jeremiah is not this guy who's standing just proclaiming, you evil people, God's going to destroy you because you've rejected Him. You know, he's not like a holier-than-thou person. Jeremiah's heart is breaking for the people. He's weeping. In fact, he's known as the weeping prophet. Verse 18, Say to the king and to the queen mother, Humble yourselves, sit down, for your rule shall collapse the crown of your glory. The cities of the south shall be shut up, and no one shall, be, and no one shall open them. Judah shall be carried away captive, all of it. It shall be wholly carried away captive. This uh, king and the queen mother more than likely is Jehoiakim, also known as Jeconiah, and his mother Nehushta. And they were, in the, they were in control there. They were on the throne when the Babylonians came, and they were both carried off to Babylon. Verse 20, Lift up your eyes and see those who come from the north. Where is the flock that was given to you, your beautiful sheep? What will you say when he punishes you? For you have taught them to be chieftains, to be head over you. Will not pangs seize you like a woman in labor? And if you say in your heart, why have these things come upon me? For the greatness of your iniquity, your skirts have been uncovered, your heels made bare. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard its spots? Then may you also do good who are accustomed to do evil." There's a, it's, a, it's a picture that's being painted here, a very vivid picture. You know, you and I, we can't alter the color of our skin. The leopard can't alter the spots of its coat. And just likewise, it's physically impossible for these people to like turn their lives around and become good people, to, to reform themselves. A lot of times people think, you know, I'm just going to... I'm going to become a good person. I'm going to start doing good things. I'll, I'll start going to church or I'll start, you know, helping little ladies cross the street or, you know, whatever they, whatever, you know, I'll start recycling. Whatever it is that they want to do that's in their mind good. And yet the Bible says even our best deeds, what, are right, or filthy rags, right? See, it's impossible for you and I to reform our lives. And it was impossible for these people. God knew their hearts. But the good news is, What's impossible with men? Man, it's always possible with God. God can take any life, no matter how far you've gone, no matter what you've done, He can take your life and transform it. But it's only through Him. You can't transform your own life. It's only through the power of the Holy Spirit. Verse 24, Therefore I will scatter them like stubble that passes away by the wind of the wilderness. Uh, excuse me, it passes away by the wind of the wilderness. This is your lot, verse 25. The portion of your measures from me, says the Lord, because you have forgotten me and trusted in falsehood. Therefore, I will uncover your skirts over your face that your shame may appear. I have seen your adulteries and your lustful names, the lewdness of your harlotry, your abominations on the hills, in the fields. Woe to you, O Jerusalem, Will you still not be made clean? You know, these, God's heart, I mean, He just wants them 
to repent. He wants them to change. But he knows that at this point, there is no repentance for him. And so his punishment is coming upon them. Chapter 14. The word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah concerning the droughts. So during this time, God caused the rain, you know, he held back the rains from from falling on the land of Judah and the land of, of you know, the city of Jerusalem, the land of Judah and the cities of, or excuse me, the land of Israel. For an agricultural culture, that would be a very serious thing. I mean, that'd be devastating being, hold, you know, the rains holding back that, that affect your livelihood, that affect so many things. I don't know, you know, how many of you, probably all of you heard about that meteor that came in, in Russia and, you know, and it's like, well, they say like 20, 20 uh, bombs, you know, like 20 atomic bombs like Hiroshima that, that exploded and all these windows were shattered. And, you know, I believe that God is protecting our planet, you know, from, you, know, you see these movies about these, you know, these asteroids that are coming that are the size of, you know, Colorado and stuff. And, you know, you, you got, you know, this, these heroes that, you know, they land on the asteroid. I, there's that one movie. I, haven't, I forgot. You know what I'm talking about. But anyways, <laughs> I, you know, I don't get too freaked out about those kind of movies because I'm like, you know, God's protecting our planet. But, you know, I think at this point, as we're seeing things like this meteor, that God is starting to pull back his hand of protection. And he's starting to allow things to happen around this planet to us because he's wanting people to turn back to him. You know, it's really interesting. You might not have heard this on the news, but at the same time that that meteor crashed in Russia, do you know there was two other meteors? Not that big. There was that other, that big one that they say that, you know, missed the earth by 17,000 miles. There was two other meteors, though, or asteroids, whatever you want to call it, that uh, were crashed in different places. In uh, Let me read this, two different articles. Shortly after a meteor crashed into central Russia, a second was reportedly spotted in the skies over the Bay Area from Santa Clara to Fairfield. That's the San Francisco Bay Area. And also over the Central Valley uh, cities of Fresno and Stockton and San Francisco. Within the same amount of time, there was an asteroid that was visible over San Francisco in that area. Cuba, here's another article. Cuba apparently experienced a phenomenon similar to but smaller than the meteorite that detonated over Russia this week. Island media reported with startled residents describing a bright light in the sky and a loud explosion that shook windows and walls. So we have these three different meteors plus that one that, you know, that missed the earth. I believe God is starting to pull back his hand of protection and I think his return is so soon. I mean, I think we're on the cusp of his second coming. And I think we're going to start seeing more and more and more of these, these things happening. I know somebody was passing around a video that I saw. Uh, and at one point I thought, oh, it would be kind of cool to show it here at church. But I thought, you know, it's, I don't know, it gets kind of sensational. But it talks about all these uh, places where they've had like birds just fall out of the sky dead. You know, there's no reason. Thousands of birds just drop dead. It's happened in several places. All these weird phenomena that's been occurring lately. And, you know, some people say, well, that's global warming. Well, you know what, I think it's just birth pains. And, you know, in anticipation of the revealing of the sons of God, you know, Christ's return. 
So here God is allowing the droughts to affect Judah in that area because of their sin, because of their disobedience. And so verse 2, it says, Judah mourns and her gates languish. They mourn for the land and the, and the cry of Jerusalem has gone up. Their nobles have sent their lads for water. They went to the cisterns and found no water. They returned with their, with their vessels empty. They were ashamed and confounded and covered their heads because the ground is parched. For there was no rain in the land. The plowmen were ashamed. They covered their heads. Yes, the deer also gave birth in the field, but left because there was no grass. And the wild donkeys stood in the desolate heights. They sniffed at the wind like jackals. Their eyes failed because there was no grass. And so you get this picture. Not only is mankind being, the people of Jerusalem and Judah are being affected by it, but even the animals are being affected by this, this drought, this withholding of rain. And it says over and over that they were ashamed and they were confounded. But you know what they were ashamed and confounded over? Was the consequences Hey, there's no water. What's happening? They weren't ashamed and confounded over their sin. Verse 7. O Lord, though our iniquities testify against us, do it for your name's sake, for our backslidings are many. We have sinned against you. Now, this is uh, Jeremiah speaking here. He's speaking on behalf of the people. Verse 8. O hope of Israel his Savior in time of trouble. Why should you be like a stranger in the land and like a traveler who turns aside to tarry for a night? Why should you be like a man astonished, like a mighty one who cannot save? Yet you, O Lord, are in our midst, and we are called by your name. Do not leave us. Jeremiah's heart, you know, not only is he weeping for the people, but he's interceding on behalf of the people. Lord, we've sinned. And he's including himself in there. Lord, you know, save us. Don't allow this to occur. occur, occur excuse me. <laughs> and it's interesting. He says, yet you, O Lord, are in our midst, and we are called by your name. Lord, we're your people. But look how God responds in verse 10. Thus says the Lord to this people. Thus they have loved to wander. They have not restrained their feet. Therefore, the Lord does not accept them. He will remember their iniquity now and punish their sins. Jeremiah is crying on behalf of the people, Lord, don't allow your people to be, to be, you know, to go through this. And God says, hey, tell this people they've wandered from me. He doesn't even want to claim them as his people at this point because they love to wander and they've not restrained their feet from evil. And therefore, God is going to allow them to be punished for their sins. Verse 11, Then the Lord said to me, Do not pray for this people for their good. When they fast, I will not hear their cry. And when they offer burnt offering and grain offering, I will not accept them, but I will consume them by the sword, by the famine, and by the pestilence. It's pretty sad when God tells His prophets, Hey, don't pray for the people anymore. Why? Is it because God doesn't want him to pray? No. God's given Jeremiah that heart for his people. But God knows that their hearts at this point are so hard that they're not going to repent. That's a pretty sad state of affairs when God tells them that he's no longer going to bless them because of their iniquity. Verse 13, Then I said, Ah, Lord God, 
Behold, the prophets say to them, You shall not see the sword, nor shall you have famine, but I will give you assured peace in this place. And the Lord said to me, The prophets prophesy lies in my name. I have not sent them, commanded them, nor spoken to them. They prophesy to you a false vision, divination, a worthless thing, and the deceit of their heart. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who prophesy in my name, whom I did not send, and who say, Sword and famine shall not be in this land. By sword and famine, those prophets shall be consumed. And the people to whom they prophesy shall be cast out in the streets of Jerusalem because of the famine and the sword. They will have no one to bury them them or uh, nor their wives, their sons, nor their daughters, for I will pour wickedness on them. Therefore you shall say this word to them, Let my eyes flow with tears night and day, and let them not cease, for the virgin daughter of my people has broken with a mighty stroke, uh, has been broken with a mighty stroke and with a severe blow. If I go out to the field, then behold, those slain with the sword. And if I enter the city, then behold, those sick from famine. Yes, both prophet and priest go down in a land they do not know. The whole time Jeremiah was prophesying, hey, God is going to send you into captivity. Just, you know, just later on, he's going to say, just submit to God's discipline in your life. And there were other prophets that were claiming to be prophets of the Lord. They were standing up and they're saying, hey, God, you're God's people. You're blessed. He's not going to allow that to happen to you. You know, you're chosen people. And, and they were not speaking for God. And those prophets and the people that listened to them, the people that received their fault, that false counsel, they were all going to be suffering uh, God's judgment as a result of that. Verse 19, here Jeremiah. You know, God tells him, stop praying for the people. He can't, he can't help himself. Verse 19, have you utterly rejected Judah? Has your soul loathed Zion? Why have you stricken us so that there is no healing for us? We looked for peace, but there was no good. And for the time of healing, and there was trouble. We acknowledge, O Lord, our wickedness and the iniquity of our fathers, for we have sinned against you. Do not abhor us for your name's sake. Do not disgrace the throne of your glory. Remember, do not break your covenant with us. Are there any among the idols of the nations that can cause rain? Or can the heavens give showers? Are you not he, O Lord God? Therefore we will wait for you, since you have made all these. Jeremiah is praying this. The people aren't praying this. The people's hearts are hardened at this point. They don't even think they're going to be going into captivity. But Jeremiah's heart reflects God's heart. You see, God's been doing a work in Jeremiah all along. Jeremiah was the reluctant prophet. When God said, hey, I'm going to send you as a prophet to my people, Jeremiah was like, man, I'm too young. You know, and, and he had all these excuses, much like Moses and other people. God, you can't use me. I'm, I'm no good. I can't speak, whatever. And God took that person just like he'll take you and I. And he does it. Not only is he using you and using me to minister to people, but he does a work in the minister themselves, in the person doing the ministry. God cares about as, as much about you as he does about the ministry that he has you involved with. Chapter 15. We're going to try to finish Jeremiah today. If I get through it, we'll see how it goes. 
Jeremiah chapter 15. Then the Lord said to me, Even if Moses and Samuel stood before me, my mind would not be favorable towards this people. Cast them out of, the, out of my sight and let them go forth. And it shall be, if they say to you, Where should we go? Then you shall tell them, Thus says the Lord. Such are for death to death, or excuse me, such as for death to death, such as are for the sword to the sword, such as uh, for the famine to the famine, and such as are for the captivity to the captivity. Interesting that Moses and Samuel are mentioned here. These are both, if you look at the lives of, of Moses and Samuel, they had a lot of things in common. Both of them heard the voice of the Lord call them. You know, Moses, he was a wandering fugitive in the wilderness uh, after uh, killing an Egyptian. And he sees this burning bush in the distance and goes, oh, that's kind of odd, a burning bush in the middle of the wilderness. And he walks over and the Lord God speaks to Moses. Samuel, he's dedicated to the Lord and he's in the temple. Eli's the high priest and Samuel's just this little guy in the temple. And he hears the voice of the Lord at night calling him, Samuel, Samuel. He gets up and he thinks it's Eli. You guys know the story. You've been to Sunday school. You've probably heard the, the story before. Both of those guys, the Lord spoke to them intimately. And both had a very intimate fellowship with the Lord. In fact, the, uh, I think David wrote Psalm 99. I'm not sure. But in Psalm 99, verse 6, speaking about Moses and Samuel, says, They called upon the Lord, and He answered them. I mean, they had that kind of a relationship. They just, they just spoke to the Lord, and the Lord spoke right back to them. They also both became intercessors for God's people. You remember when Samuel or the, the nation of Israel, they wanted a king. And God had always said, hey, I don't want you to have a king. I'm your king. You just, you just let me rule you. You just let me. I'll take care of you. I'll guide you. I'll bless you. I'll, you know, and, and they, but they're like, no, we want a king just like all the nations around us. And Samuel took it personally. He was upset. He's like, God, look, look, what they're, look what these people are saying. And God says, hey, Samuel, they haven't rejected you. They've rejected me. Go ahead and let them have a king. And so Samuel chooses Saul to be the first king of Israel. And Saul presides over Samuel, or excuse me, Samuel presides over Saul's coronation. And that coronation, his speech is, is recorded in 1 Samuel chapter 12. And towards the end of it, Samuel says this, Moreover, as for me, far be it for me that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you, but I will teach you the good and the right way. And you know the story with, with Saul. Saul, you know, he rejected the Lord. He, he, he followed his own, the dictates of his own heart. He, he got caught up in all kinds of sin, and God rejected him from being king. And at one point, you know, he goes, Samuel goes away to where he came from, his town. And, and he's, he sits there and he never sees Saul again the rest of Saul's life. But he's always, he's, his heart's broken for Saul. And, you know, sometimes you get into those situations with people where, you know, you're at a point where you, you just, you have to separate from them. You know, for whatever reason, sin or whatever, whatever's going on, you have to separate from them. But you can't stop praying for them. Your heart's just breaking for what they're going through in their lives. And, and that's an intercessor. And this is what Samuel was. Moses, man, Moses in the wilderness. 
The people were so stubborn. You know, I mean, they, every time something would happen, they're like, you know, did God send us into the wilderness to kill us? And at one point, God is so, well, seemingly fed up with the people. And he says, Moses, step out of the way. I'm going to wipe out those people, and I'm going to make a nation out of you. And, you know, if it was me, I'd be like, cool, yeah, go for it, Lord, you know. But Moses wasn't like that, man. Moses' heart broke for the people. He says, Lord God, what are the nations all around going to say? You delivered these people with a mighty hand out of Egypt. What are the nations going to say when, when all of a sudden, you, it's like you can't bring them the whole way to the promised land? They're going to mock you, Lord. And, and Moses interceded on behalf of the people. And the Bible says that God changed his mind. Well, you know what? God didn't change his mind. God was working in Moses just like he was working in Samuel to make them intercessors, to give them a heart for the people, just like he's doing with Jeremiah here. And so the Lord says here, man, even if Moses and Samuel, those two that were so close to me, even if those guys interceded for these people, I wouldn't listen. That's how hard, that's how far into sin they had gotten. That's how, how hard their hearts were from not repenting. Verse 3. And I will appoint over them four forms of destruction, says the Lord. The sword to slay, the dogs to drag, the birds of the heavens and the beasts of the earth to devour and destroy. I will hand them over to trouble to all kingdoms of the earth because of Manasseh, the son of Hezekiah, king of Judah, for what he did in Jerusalem. Manasseh, that king had been dead for many, many years. He was the son of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was a pretty good king. Actually, was a, really quite a good king in Judah. But his son, Manasseh, was the most wicked king that Judah had ever had. You know, a lot of the kings, they would, they would you know, they'd come into power and they would start getting rid of the idols that the people had in the land. And they would, you know, they would do some reforms. And, and, you know, the people's hearts were still kind of caught up in idolatry. But the king did as much as he could trying to, get the people to start worshiping the Lord. And a lot of these kings, Hezekiah was one of them. Manasseh did just the opposite. He started rebuilding all the idle places of worship. He himself sacrificed to Molech. Now, if you know what Molech was, that was the god where they would take, uh, they would take their babies and they would set them on, the, on, a, on a... They would take... Molech was a statue, basically a bronze statue that they would heat up in a fire with its arms stretched out, and they would take their babies and they would lay the baby on the arms of Molech, and the baby would literally burn to death. It was called passing your children through the fire. Manasseh, king of Judah, God's nation, one of God's kings, he was actually doing that himself, causing his children to pass through the fire. He was the most wicked king, and he set such a bad example for the people and God was punishing them because of the sin of Manasseh and, of course, of their sin as well. An interesting thing, if you look at Manasseh's life, he went into captivity, and he repented in captivity. And God allowed him to come back into the land, and he started reforming and doing all kinds of things. He, started, he was a transformed man, but the damage of what he had done, his influence on the people were already done. The people were stuck back into idolatry. And he had a son. And even though Manasseh was a godly man, Ammon, his son, 
was also a very, very wicked king. His father was Hezekiah, and Hezekiah was a good king. And, you know, we were in Isaiah, of course, that's just before Jeremiah. We were in Isaiah not too long ago. And at one point, God tells Isaiah, the prophet, go to Hezekiah and and tell him to get his house in order because he's going to die. And so Isaiah faithfully goes to King Hezekiah and gives Hezekiah the news, hey, you're going to die. And if you know the story, Hezekiah wept bitterly. He was begging God. I mean, he, he just, he turned his back to the wall and he just, he wouldn't get out of his bed and he just wept and begged and, and, and just was miserable. And God tells Isaiah, go back into the room and tell Manasseh, excuse me, tell Hezekiah, I'm going to give him 15 more years. And so it's like, wow, God answered his prayer. Well, you know, the sad thing about it was during those 15 years, that's when Manasseh was born the most wicked king that Judah ever had. And it makes you wonder sometimes, and, and you know, I believe firmly, and I think the Bible teaches that we are to bring everything to the Lord in prayer. And, you know, there's the, there's the parable of the widow that doesn't give up praying before the unjust judge. And it's a picture how God's not unjust, but if an unjust judge will listen to persistent prayer, how, prayer, how much more will a God who loves us answer our prayers? And we're not to give up in prayer. And, and I think there's plenty of scriptures like that. But I have to wonder, what if Hezekiah just said, Hey, Lord God, your will be done. And he went to heaven, because he was a good king. He went went to heaven. Manasseh would have never been born. And all this stuff wouldn't have happened. I mean, I'm just musing right now, thinking about it. But it makes you wonder sometimes. You know, sometimes we want our ways so bad, and, and sometimes our ways... What we think we want is really not the best for us. God knows what's best for us. And sometimes, you know, He'll let us have our way. And it's not always the best. And I think that's what happened here in Hezekiah's case with Manasseh. Verse 5. For who will have pity on you, O Jerusalem? Or who will bemoan you? Or who will turn aside to ask how you are doing? You have forsaken me, says the Lord. You have gone backward. Therefore, I will stretch out my hand against you and destroy you. I am weary of relenting. And I will winnow them with a winnowing fan in the gates of the land. I will bereave them of children. I will destroy my people since they do not return from their ways. Their widows will be increased to me more than the sand of the seas. I will bring against them, against the mother of the young men, a plunderer at noonday. I will cause anguish and terror to fall on them suddenly. She languishes who was born seven. She has breathed her last. Her son has gone down while it was yet day. She has been ashamed and confounded, and the remnant of them I will deliver to the sword before their enemies, says the Lord." And now here, Jeremiah in verse 10. Woe is me, my mother, that you have borne me, a man of strife and a man of contention to the whole earth. I have neither lent for interest, nor have men lent to me for interest. Every one of them curses me. If you understand what Jeremiah is saying, you know, Jeremiah here he's prophesying this, these words of the Lord to the people, and, and, and now he's like, man, I don't, he's not enjoying his ministry at this point. 
He probably would very much like to get out of ministry at this point because the people had turned against him. There were prophets that were prophesying just the opposite of what he was saying. He was facing opposition throughout his entire ministry. And here, Jeremiah is pouring out his complaint to the Lord. He's like, you know, Lord, I'm not even a lender that, you know, I lend money to people and then they, they hate me because I'm trying to get interest from their, you know, I'm not, the, I'm not the lender that the borrower hates. And I'm not the borrower who's behind on his payments that the lender hates. But yet, everybody hates me. Nobody loves me. I think I'll go eat some worms. <laughs> That's... <laughs> So here, Jeremiah, you know, he's just pouring out his heart to the Lord. And God responds to him. Verse 11, The Lord said, Surely it be well with your remnant. Surely I will cause the enemy to intercede with you in the time of adversity and in the time of affliction. We have to ask ourselves, what remnant are we speaking about? Is that the remnant of the people of Judah? I don't think so. I think it's the remnant of Jeremiah's days. Because... When they went into captivity, Nebuchadnezzar told his commanding officer, he said, I want you to take care of Jeremiah. Jeremiah was treated actually well by the Babylonians. And so this was literally fulfilled by Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 12, Can anyone break iron, the northern iron and the bronze? Your wealth and your treasures I will give as plunderer without price because of all your sins throughout your territories. And I will make you cross over with your enemies into a land which you do not know. For a fire is kindled in my anger, which shall burn upon you. You know, it's interesting here. We have Jeremiah in verse 10 pouring out his complaint to the Lord. In verse 11, the Lord's giving him a, a comfort, a prophecy, saying, Hey, your, the, the, your latter days are going to be better than what you're going through right now. And then he goes right back into speaking about Judah and their sin and what he's going, what's going to take place to the people of Judah. And if you notice it, God doesn't spend a whole lot of time on Jeremiah. Like, Jeremiah, you know, this is what's going to happen. Tomorrow, I'm going to send this person to bless you, to encourage you. And then later on, this is, God doesn't do that. God just says, hey, you know, your, your end days are going to be okay. I'll take care of you. And he leaves it at that. And he gets back into the ministry. And I just think it's an interesting thing because so often I think we want God to reveal everything to us. Lord, how are you going to bless us? And how are you going to make this happen? And, and God just says, hey, just trust me and walk with me and I'll take care of everything. And let's focus on the need at hand, the ministry, those that are lost and dying and those that need to hear my word. You know, let's focus on them. So it's a, I think it's just interesting that it occurs that way. Verse 15 O oh Lord, you know, remember me and visit me. Again, this is Jeremiah speaking again. And take vengeance for me on my persecutors. In your enduring patience, do not take me away. Know that for your sake, I have suffered rebuke. Your words were found and I ate them. And your word was to me the joy and rejoicing of my heart. For I am called by your name, O oh Lord God of hosts. Jeremiah, once more, is pouring out his complaint to the Lord. And it's interesting what he says there in verse 16. Your words were found and I ate them, and your word was to me the joy and rejoicing of my heart. 
And I wonder, man, can I say that? Man, man, I just eat your words. Your words are my joy. I mean, I live for your words is what he's basically saying. It's kind of like Job. Job in chapter 23, verse 12, he says, I have not departed from the commandment of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. And I wonder, man, do I say that? Do you say that? Well, maybe we say it, but do we actually live that way? Where God's word is the most important thing to us. You know, every once in a while I'm talking with someone and they talk about how little time they have. And, and you know, and I, I empathize with them. Oh, I feel bad for you. You know, yeah, you've got a really busy life. But, you know, when you think about it, we all have the same amount of time every day, right? We all have 24 hours in a day. We all have 60 minutes uh, in an hour. I'm going to get stuck in my math here, so I won't go beyond that. But, you know, we, we all have the same amount of time. And when it comes down to it, we make choices that determine what our time is spent, right? You might say, well, yeah, I got I to gotta earn a living. My wife's got to earn a living. You know, we, we got to work and, you know, because we got to afford our house. Well, if you, yeah, that's true. But if you think about it, maybe we chose to buy a house that was a little bit above our price range, and so now we got to work overtime, and we got to, you know, and now we're kind of like a slave to our mortgage. Again, it's a choice, right? I mean, if we're honest with each other, with ourselves, it's a choice that we make. What you and I do with our time is all up to us. And you know, I'll tell you one thing that I always make time for is a meal. <laughs> I don't miss a meal. I mean, you can ask my wife. I come home from work or, you know, it's like rather than, hi, honey, it's like, hey, what's for dinner? (laughs) You know, it's on my mind all the time. I rarely miss a meal unless I'm really planning on it for some reason, but do I rarely miss time spent in God's Word? You know, it's convicting when you read it, when you think about it. Verse 17 I did not sit in the assembly of the mockers, nor did I rejoice. I sat alone because of your hand, for you have filled me with indignation. Why is my pain perpetual and my wound incurable, which refuses to be healed? Will you surely be to me like an unreliable stream as waters that fail? This is Jeremiah speaking to the Lord, and he's saying, God, are you going to be an unreliable stream? You know, a well that, you know, it runs out of water. And I'm like, it sounds like Jeremiah, you know, it's almost like you know, wait for the lightning to strike to hit Jeremiah because he's, he's saying these things to the Lord. He's basically saying, Lord, Lord, am I going to be able to count on you? And you might say, well, you know, man, is Jeremiah sinning? But I don't think he is. And he doesn't get rebuked by the Lord for this. Yeah, Jeremiah is complaining. But you know what the difference is? He's not complaining to others about God. He's not forsaking God. He's not like, that's it, I've had enough. I'm not going to get into my word. I'm not going to pray. I'm not going to be in fellowship anymore. I'm just going to do my own. That's not Jeremiah. He's complaining, yeah, but he's complaining to God. He's spending time with the Lord in an intimate communion with the Lord. And maybe that kind of freaks you out. Like, man, I don't know if I'd ever say, you know, complain to God. But you know what? God can handle your and my complaints. You know why? He already knows what's in your heart. (laughs) He already knows where you're at. 
He knows what you're thinking. He knows what your fears are. He knows what gets you ticked off and everything. And he just wants that open communication with him, just like your wife or your husband wants with you. Just be honest. Let's, let's just talk. Yeah, maybe it doesn't have to all be rosy. Let's, let's be honest with one another. God wants that kind of a relationship with you and I. You see, Jeremiah is in his prayer closet right now. And this prayer closet, it's intimate with him and the Lord. He's honest. And it's a regular communication with God. And God doesn't rebuke Jeremiah for that. And I think that's a good thing that you and I need to do. Not that we need to complain to the Lord. But we need to be honest with the Lord and just say, hey, Lord, this is where I'm at. He knows it already. And, and have that communication with the Lord. Because if you look at Moses' life, Moses did the same thing. Samuel complained to the Lord. All these men, David, all these guys. I mean, you know, David's like, you know, I want to, that one psalm, you know, let me kick out my enemy's teeth or, you know, bust their teeth. And I mean, I mean, that's, there's some emotions there, right? But he was a man after God's own heart. Why? Because he was in constant communication with the Lord and he was honest with the Lord. And he didn't play games with God. And God wants that in all of us. He wants that kind of relationship. And so God here doesn't rebuke Jeremiah. In fact, look at verse 19. Therefore, thus says the Lord, If you return, then I will bring you back. You shall stand before me if you take out the precious from the vile. You shall be as my mouth. Let them return to you, but you must not return to them. And I will make you, to this people, a fortified bronze wall. And they will fight against you, but they shall not prevail against you. For I am with you to save you and deliver you, says the Lord. I will deliver you from the hand of the wicked, and I will redeem you from the grip of the terrible. He says, if you take out the precious from the vile. And you know, as a pastor, I mean, that's, to me, that right away speaks about rightly dividing the Word of God. You know, I, I want to accurately represent God to, to His people. I don't, I don't want to say, I don't want to be like these false prophets of Jeremiah that say, hey, God, you know, God just winks at your sin and, you know, nothing's going to happen and everything. No, I want to be honest. You know, we serve a righteous and a holy God and, and He cares about our lives. He wants us to live holy lives. And, and I want to be rightly dividing, uh, dividing the word when it comes to prophecy and all those things. So I definitely see a correlation to pastors. But I see a correlation, to honestly, to everybody. We need to separate the vile from the good, from the precious in our lives. What are we talking about? I think we're talking about discernment. You know, God, our holiness, you know, in and of myself, I'm, I'm, I can't please God with my life. My life is, you know, even the best things I do, it's filthy rags in God's sight. But that doesn't mean that God doesn't want me to live a holy life. That doesn't want, mean that He doesn't want me to forsake sin. Yeah, I, I can't earn His righteousness. I can't earn His love. He already loves me. The righteousness comes from Him. But He still wants you and I to live holy lives before Him and to forsake sin and to use discernment. And that's, I think, one of the things that's lacking in the church today is discernment. If we'd be more discerning, I think things would be so much better Hebrews 5.14, how do we get discernment? But solid food belongs to those who are of full age, that is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good 
and evil. Exercising. What are we talking about? We're talking about saying no to sin. We're saying, saying no to the flesh. When you exercise your senses, you read God's Word, you say, you know, God's Word says this, and I've been doing that, but God's Word says this. Lord, I humbly repent before you. Lord, I don't want to do that anymore. Help, Give me the strength, empower me to do that. And making a choice. And as you and I do that, we're exercising our senses to discern both good and evil. And we get to the point where we're not in that darkness as much, and we start to go, you know what, that's sin, and I don't want to do that anymore. I've shared this with people before, but I think it bears repeating. You know, in, in my life, there were certain things that, you know, was, were temptations for me. And uh, you, you, as I was growing in the Lord, and I, I'm certainly not there yet, but as I've been growing in the Lord, there's certain things that I've just said no to. And, you know, yeah, I struggled and maybe I fell and I fell back into those things. But, you know, the more you say no to those sins, the stronger you get. And I look back to my life at some of the things that used to trip me up. Things that if I was around it, I mean, I could just be in the same room or, you know, whatever. In my case, it would be smelling a certain herb, you know. I would just, that'd be it, you know. I'd be right there with everybody else. Back into my old lifestyle. But I've said no to it enough that it's no longer a temptation for me. Now, I'm not going to say I'm never going to fall. I pray I I never do, but it's not an issue for me anymore. There are, of course, there's other issues. Ice cream. (laughs) I haven't been able to say no to ice cream yet, but, uh, or chocolate. There's a couple things that I like, but, uh, no, but seriously, you know, I think that's what we need. We need, we need to exercise. We need to separate those things in our lives because, you know, we are called out people. The church is called out. We're called out. We're in the world. You know, we're to be ministering into the world. We're not to be called to go out to a monastery and be in a, you know, a holy huddle. We're in the world, but we're not to be of the world. People want to see a difference in our lives. And as you and I cling to the Lord, as we talked about earlier, and as they see God's shape within us, so to speak, that's something that the world can't fake. And when they see a life that's living holy and just for the Lord, man, it, it speaks volumes. And it's attractive to the world. And so that's what we want our lives to be like. So why don't you stand up? Let's go, Lord, in prayer.